all right. Hello out there and welcome to the Cotton Companion Podcast. This is Beck Barnes and uh, Jim Stebbin here of Cotton Grower and we are coming to you from the newly world famous, the brand new world famous virtual Cotton Companion Studios, uh, also known as the rooms in our respective houses that our wives have uh, banished, banished us to uh, while we are working from home. Uh, despite all of those disruptions around us, uh, we are producing a podcast. We're uh, full steam ahead here at Cotton Grower. And uh, on top of that, it's been a beautiful past uh, few springtime days here in Memphis. Uh, no rainfall for the past several days. That's the first time we can say that in what feels like 100 years. Um, and I know, uh, speaking for me, I got a bunch of honeydew yard work stuff done in over the weekend uh, now that I'm at the home office. And I suspect my partner in crime, Mr. Jim Stebman, did as well. What do you think? Howdy, Jim. Hey, Beck. And yes, uh, there was quite a bit of yard work uh, going on yesterday, but you know, it's it's good to have everything squared away and, and moving ahead. And, and I guess we could call this the Cotton Companion Extreme Home Edition. Extreme Home Condition. You're right. Cotton Companion Home Makeover. Home Takeover. Yes. Maybe. There we go. Um, so yeah, you're right. And uh, as we mentioned here, we are both at home uh, for the foreseeable future and, and enjoying these warmer temps. We know that y'all are enjoying those warmer temps as well. Uh, warmer temperatures mean warmer ground temperatures. And that means uh, if I know y'all, you are getting that itchy trigger finger to uh, start thinking about putting some seeds in the ground. Uh, you probably are already putting other crops in the ground, but you're starting to think about those cotton seeds uh, here in the coming, coming weeks. And um, I don't know about y'all, but for me, man, I love that feeling of optimism and hope in the springtime and that, that feeling that planting season brings us, uh, even in the middle of this kind of hectic, dis disruptive days, uh, these circumstances that we're living in, uh, you know, planting season puts some optimism in the air for me. So um, anyhow, we, you know, we got a great episode coming up for y'all today. The first thing we want to do is to bring you a short message from our sponsor, the fine folks within List. This episode of Cotton Companion is brought to you by the Enlist Weed Control System, ready to help you control tough weeds with 2,4-D choline featuring inherent low volatility. Okay, and we appreciate our sponsors today, the, the aforementioned Enlist, uh, as well as the, the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. That's a program from Cotton Incorporated. For now, as we always do, we are going to follow that Enlist ad up with our own custom content segment featuring our own custom content editor, Robin Sickberg, and she recently sat down and spoke with Shauna Hubbard, a traits herbicide product manager at Corteva. We're gonna bring you that custom interview segment right now. Hello, I'm Robin Sickberg, custom content editor with Meister Media Worldwide, publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine. My guest today is Shauna Hubbard, traits herbicide product manager for Corteva AgriScience. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You know, as the season is getting underway, um, what kinds of weed pressure are cotton farmers facing today? Well, we've had a trend of growing resistance with weeds uh, for quite some time now, and we do see that continuing. We've got some especially tough species in the pigweed family with palmer amaranth, um, and even seeing challenges with other weeds in the cotton belt as well, kochia being a tough one over in Oklahoma and the Texas region uh, and up into Kansas. So a uh, variety of challenges for farmers as that resistance continues to develop and folks are 
re-looking at their plans for management with new technologies, as well as uh, mechanical methods and good agronomic practices as well. What results are farmers seeing after applying Enlist herbicides? For folks who are using Enlist cotton from the Phytogen brand and using Enlist herbicides in those fields, we are seeing good results for control of those resistant weeds. Even the tough pigweed species, as we've used an integrated weed management plan uh, that involves starting clean and utilizing those pre-emergence herbicides and then coming in timely with an Enlist herbicide, we are seeing good results there. Uh, 240-choline in Enlist herbicides has a lot of power on those tough and resistant broadleaves, including our pigweed species. So good results thus far, but uh, really want to keep emphasizing that folks use that integrated weed management approach um, using a program with multiple sites of action. So, Shauna, where can farmers get more information on Enlist Cotton? For those who are using the Enlist system, Enlist.com is a great resource to check out for more about how to use the traits, how to spray the herbicides, and uh, we are hosting a live webinar on Tuesday, April 21st, uh, that is open to anybody if they want to learn more about spraying Enlist, uh, specifically in the cotton belt. We'll talk about field planning and many different considerations there for those of us in the cotton belt. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure that you know farmers are going to really need that resource as they move forward. Appreciate your time, Shauna. Thanks, Robin. All right. So a big thank you to Robin and to Shauna and to Enlist. Uh, with that, we're going to get the ball rolling on this, the 69th episode of the Cotton Companion. And man, we got a lot to get into today. It has been a, uh, seems like the past month has been, uh, you know, big news items almost every day. And uh, it's no different in the world of cotton. Uh, Jim is going to lead us in our news segment uh, where topics will include, but are not limited to, um, a surprising USDA acreage projection that came out last week amidst all the other wild news headlines uh, flying back and forth. Uh, we got that acreage projection. Uh, we're also going to do, he also brought us a, um, on our website, Jim uh, did a story uh, that broke, really thoroughly broke down the CARES Act uh, that was passed as kind of a recovery stimulus bill by the federal government in response to this economic disruptions of the COVID-19 virus. And so Jim did a really good job of kind of uh, breaking down what that meant for agriculture. And he's gonna get into that in that news segment too. Um, before we dive into that news though, the formal news segment, uh, we did get a reader question last week. I had put out a call for um, reader questions, things that you guys might be having anxiety about in the middle of all this stuff. And sure enough, we got a good uh, email in to my own inbox that day. And um, I want to read that to y'all now. I'm not going to tell you the name of the sender because, frankly, I forgot to ask him permission to use his name, and I don't want to get myself in trouble there. But I know he had a question that many of y'all are asking. And so, uh, anyhow, I'll read you verbatim his email that he sent me right now. He says, my question is concerning the stimulus bill that was recently passed. Now, granted, he sent this on March 27. Um, and uh, this was before a couple pieces of that bill were passed. So just keep that piece of context in mind. He says, my question is concerning the stimulus bill that was recently passed. Uh, I understand there will be small business loans available to cover salaries for employees and are forgivable if used, if used all and solely for salaries. So will these small business loans be available for farmers to cover the cost of employee salaries? 
I know from experience that farmers are not often not seen as small businesses, even though we are small businesses. So um, that was a great question. We immediately kind of went about trying to come up with, you know, an appropriate answer to that thing. It's a tricky question because things are moving so quickly. And uh, the, <laughs> the guy who asked that question sort of presciently uh, included that last line about how, well, sometimes farms aren't defined as small businesses, even though they are 100% small businesses. We all know that, but the outside world doesn't see farming as that. And sure enough, um, you know, I, I, in researching this thing, I came across this great story that was put together by uh, the Farm Bureau. I believe it was written by uh, a Veronica lady named Veronica Nye. She's an economist with the Farm Bureau. And uh, they were researching this exact question um, after the Paytech Paycheck Protection Loan Act was passed late last week. And it was the question of, well, is this going to be available for farmers? And they were hung up. In fact, uh, the Farm Bureau put out a their first um, reading of this bill that, that was passed. They wrote a long piece that they posted on their website that said they didn't think that farmers were going to be able to access these uh, paycheck protection loan funds because of this loose definition or this rather tight definition of what a small business is. Well, lo and behold, on Friday, April 3rd, they did an update um, about their understanding of this bill. And I'm going to read you verbatim what that update was. Uh, they said, yesterday morning, we posted an article farmers titled, Farmers Use of Paycheck Protection Loan Depends on Small Business Definition questioning whether the Small Business Administration's industry level standards pertaining to revenues would be enforced, ultimately excluding thousands of agricultural producers from getting Paycheck Protection Program loans. Yesterday evening, SBA released the Paycheck Protection Program interim final rule, and based on our analysis of the interim final rule, we are pleased to confirm that the IFR removes the industry-specific revenue thresholds agriculture enterprises that employ 500 or fewer people whose principal place of residence is the United States are in fact eligible, regardless of revenue levels. So that was a long way of saying, yes, farmers do are going to be able to have access to the Paycheck Protection Loan, Paycheck Protection Program loans. Um, in a nutshell, the PPPL is designed to help small businesses, I'm reading from the story again, keep their employees paid through this difficult period. The PPPL provides $349 billion in forgivable loans to small businesses to pay employees and keep them on the payroll. These loans are open to most businesses under 500 employees, including nonprofits, the self-employed startups and cooperatives. I'm not going to read y'all the entire article there. You can find that story on um, uh, farmbureau.com. Uh, I will read you uh, a couple of key paragraphs, though, uh, quoting again from the story. The real highlight of the PPPL, however, is that the portion of the loan that covers eligible expenses within an eight-week period from February 15, 2020 to June 30, 2020 is forgivable, as long as the company maintains staff and payroll. Any loan, any loan proceeds in excess of this amount are subject to repayment at a rate of 1%. The maximum duration of the PPPL loan is two years. So this is all good news to be sure. It uh, looks like you guys are gonna get some help um, uh, keeping you know, those farm hands and, and labor you got on the farm employed. Uh, this bill, uh, according to Farm Bureau, is intended to keep small business employees on the payroll. The PPPL will likely be an important lifeline for many, including independent contractors and the self-employed, AKA you guys. 
who will benefit from the program's expanded eligibility. Expanded eligibility. Uh, an important reminder, funds from this program will be available on a first-come, first-served basis, so you guys need to be talking to your bankers about that right now. Um, in fact, I believe there's some links on that Farm Bureau piece to how you can get started getting uh, applying for these loans. So uh, uh, that was a great question. Um, the answer to the question is yes, you guys are eligible for PPPL payroll relief. Start looking into it right now uh, is our advice. That's the official cotton grower advice, right, Jim? Go. That's exactly it, Beck. You, you, you summarized it beautifully. Um, yeah, I tried to go quickly, as quickly as I can there, because we got a lot to get to. And to be sure, Jim has a great interview lined up later in the podcast uh, with Mr. Steve Verrett of uh, Plains Cotton Growers, Inc. And I believe they touch on this uh, a little bit there, too. So stay tuned for that. Um, okay, Jim, now that I've probably stepped on all over toes of things you're going to get to here in the news segment, uh, we're going to get to that news of the day right after we hear from our sponsor, the fine folks at Cotton Incorporated to tell us about the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. It's time for U.S. cotton producers to come together as a community through the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. When you enroll in the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, you'll help strengthen U.S. cotton's position in the global marketplace through our collective efforts. With the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, we can lead the charge and create the sustainable cotton the U.S. deserves. Enroll now at TrustUSCotton.org. That's TrustUS cotton.org. The U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. Are you in? Okay, again, a huge shout out to our friends at Cotton Incorporated. They do so much heavy lifting on behalf of our industry and uh, that U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, another great example of everything they do uh, for uh, building demand for our crop. So we're proud to have them as a sponsor. Now, Jim, without further ado, please hit us with the news of the day, sir. I will be happy to. And, and, and as Beck said, in, here in the, in the past week, week and a half, uh, certainly since our last podcast, a lot of things have been happening uh, in the market. And we're going to start with the, the sort of, believe it or not, uh, USDA prospective plantings report, which projected 13.7 million cotton acres for this year, which uh, really and truly kind of came as a shock to a lot of people in the industry and, and not as too much of a shock to a lot of others, uh, as I've, as I've discovered in the past, past week or so. Um, so basically according to the report, U S cotton acres are estimated. I said, like I said, at 13.7 million acres, that's down less than 1% from last year. Uh, that's, that's counting 13 and a half million acres of upland and, uh, about 228,000 acres of Pima. Uh, now, across the cotton belt, most of the states did show decreases. Uh, some of those, well, they range basically from 2% to 18%, uh, with only six states, and that would be Florida, Kansas, Missouri, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas, projected to show some very small percentage increases in cotton acres. Now, again, to help put these numbers into context, you have to recall that growers were surveyed by the National Agricultural Statistics Service during the first two weeks of March, just prior to this broad scale public health and business restrictions put in place due to the coronavirus. Now, to say the market wasn't a big fan of the report would kind of be an understatement. Uh, with prices, prices climbed slightly higher in anticipation of the report, everyone expecting fewer acres, and then dropped back into the, uh, to the high 40s uh, shortly after USDA's numbers came out. So really and truly, regardless of who you talk to about it, whether they're realistic or not, whether people believe them or not, 
it's going to be a true wait and see situation on this. Uh, and we'll certainly have the final picture as, as planting commences on a long, larger scale. We know South Texas is pretty much already in the field. Uh, but as things start in the Southeast and the Mid-South and, and other parts of the uh, and the coastal Texas, uh, we'll have a much better picture once USDA's planted acres report comes out at the end of June. Yeah, just to jump in, boy, my jaw hit the floor when I saw that 13.7 million uh, acreage projection come out. And, and you do a good job contextualizing of, you know, they really did that survey before the news is moving so quickly. It feels like the past two weeks occurred over, you know, the last three months. But you know what I'm saying? They, they did this, they conducted this survey before a lot of this heavy news came out over the past couple of weeks. Realistically, prices were in, you know, the 65 to 70 range, cent range yeah. at that point. So, right. you know, there was a certain amount of optimism in the market. Right. And uh, I know better than anybody, it's difficult coming up with a uh, acreage projection. Um, but yeah, the folks that I had spoken to uh, on the ground, anecdotally, these are anecdotes, and the plural of anecdote is never data, it's just anecdotes. Uh, but friends of mine, have been telling me for the past couple of weeks, man, you know, we're thinking about moving out of cotton and most of my folks are in the mid South and they're, we're going to move out of cotton. We're going to move, may do some corn acres, but that corn window is as wet as it's been is closing in a hurt. So people were looking at beans. And then this number came out. I was expecting this number to be close to 10 million, not in a thousand years would I have guessed they were going to go up from earlier projections. So, you know, it's a difficult thing to project, but man, it sure came as a curveball to uh, most, including myself. Yeah, I don't think anybody's willing to, you know, to stick their neck out and put a precise number on it at this point. Sure. Uh, but but some of the folks that I've talked to in the last week will not be surprised if we're anything below 12 million acres uh, would probably be closer to reality at this point. Yeah. All right. Moving ahead, uh, we're going to circle back around to the CARES Act that uh, that Beck talked about earlier in the uh, in the podcast. Um, it was, uh, it was signed on March 27th. I think the signatures on this approval came shortly after you got your message from your, uh, you know, from our, our listener. Uh, and as part of that, uh, that CARES Act, there were several supplemental appropriations for U.S. farmers and ranchers that were put in place. And they provide several options for growers to explore to help them get through the COVID-19 situation. USDA, as part of the package, received $49 billion dollars. And that included $9.5 billion to support agricultural producers, including livestock and specialty crop producers, to respond to COVID-19 losses. Another $14 billion to restore funding to the Commodity Credit Corporation and to increase the borrowing authority of USDA to support agriculture in times of crisis. Now, again, keep in mind, the past two years of market facilitation program payments and funding have come through the Commodity Credit Corporation or the CCC. And also the Secretary of Agriculture was given authority through the end of September of this year to extend terms of marketing assistance loans to 12 months from the current nine months. Uh, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail again about the Paycheck Protection Act because I think you've already covered that pretty well. And our, our, our discussion with Steve Verrett coming up is going to uh, get into a little bit more detail from, I think from a, from a localized level. Uh, but as you would expect in all of this legislation, the National Cotton Council and several other organizations work closely with AG's allies in, in Congress to put this aid package together. They also work with USDA and other federal agencies 
to provide relief on the H-2A visa processing to ensure that guest workers can get to the employers in a timely manner as spring planting begins. And they were also involved in continuing activities with agencies that regulate transportation, uh, particularly the trucking sector to help provide some relief on hours of service, weight limit exemptions, and CDL extensions and waivers. All of those things very, very important to agriculture and to the movement of goods across the country. Uh, our next bit of news, uh, Texas has a brand new statewide extension cotton specialist. His name is Dr. Ben McKnight, uh, and he will be based in College Station. Uh, he is a native Texan. He worked for both Texas A&M AgriLife Research and AgriLife Extension while he earned uh, his degrees at Texas A&M and has spent the last few years working as a weed scientist with LSU while earning his doctorate there. Now, during his postdoctoral research and as a research associate at LSU, uh, he's conducted rice field trials at research and grower locations, although most of his background has been in cotton. Now, after the announcement was made last week, uh, Dr. McKnight said that accepting this position is, is a homecoming for me, obviously. As a Texas native, I'm very familiar with the passion that our growers and industry have for cotton production. And from his standpoint, from a field research standpoint, his plans to continue evaluating, obviously, many different research topics of interest to cotton production in the state. In addition to variety testing and evaluation, some of the applied research efforts of his team are going to involve evaluating fertility programs across the state, uh, ways to control volunteer cotton plants and stalk destruction, just to name a few things. And several of these research topics will be collaborative efforts with many other researchers, with AgriLife Extension Specialists and County Agents. So uh, welcome back to Texas, uh, Dr. McKnight. Uh, you've got some, got a lot of work to do here. And, I don't, and I'm, I'm sure it's a little challenging walking into a position like this uh, with the, uh, the restrictions that are put in place, but I'm, I'm sure he's going to, he's going to do just yep. fine. Six million some odd cotton acres any given year. And, that, and what a year <laughs> to, be, to be stepping into that. So yeah, no kidding. I'm sure he's up to it though. Good luck and, uh, oh, yeah. and all the best to Ben McKnight for sure. I'm sure. And then finally, one last thing I did want to uh, want to talk about. Uh, our friends at Cotton Incorporated did a consumer survey uh, back here as of March 20th, as a matter of fact, uh, to sort of better understand the effects of the pandemic on consumer habits and attitudes. So they, uh, they posed a series of questions to 500 U.S. consumers through an online survey. And those results showed that 66% of consumers say they are, quote, very afraid these days. That shouldn't come as any surprise. Uh, personal concern increased with age, with 56% of consumers 45 years and older saying they're very concerned with the current pandemic. 40% uh, among 25 to 44-year-olds and 18% from 14 to 24-year-olds. Now, according to the survey responses, 35.8, almost 36% of consumers are spending, spending more or significantly more money than they were before the crisis. About 30% say they're spending about the same amount of money and slightly more than one third of respondents claim to be spending less. And as far as online shopping's concerned, 46% said online shop, their online shopping was about the same. 32% said they were shopping more online and about 14.5% said they were shopping less. Now, those responses also revealed that more money is being allocated to, to groceries. It's about 57%, uh, about 48% for household supplies, such as toilet paper and cleaning supplies, 
should you be able to find them. Uh, about 26% for online services and another 26% for local food delivery services, which are, uh, uh, are sort of a, you know, a real lifesaver for a lot of people in, uh, in, uh, in the situation today. But the biggest factor that we came out, they came out of this research is that comfort is playing a bigger role in daily life right now. 71% of consumers say they're watching more television. 67% say they're consuming more news. 62, almost 63% claim they're wearing comfortable clothes more often. And about 52% say they're eating more comfort food or snacks. Uh, I'm going to be real curious to see what the national average on, on individual weight looks like by the time we all come out of out of hiding here. I'm about six pounds into my COVID-19. <laughs> I got COVID-13 left to get before I reach the target there. But, but the important part of this study is when asked to identify fibers and fabrics selected for comfortable apparel, that cotton ranked the highest, almost 70% of respondents, which was far and away ahead of spandex, polyester, wool, and other fabrics. So in times of trial and people looking for comfort, man, they want to be surrounded by cotton. And uh, that was probably the best, the best news to come out of that little bit of research. And, and hopefully that's a little reassuring to the folks who are getting ready to go put cotton in the ground this year that yes, they're, you know, consumers are, you know, consumers love it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we just need to get more out there and need to get the, uh, get the markets back moving. Yeah. But anyway, that's the news. Okay. Good deal, Jim. I appreciate you there. We are going to uh, pump the brakes on our news segment there because we want to bring the folks uh, this interview that you conducted with our old friend, Mr. Steve Verrett, uh, Plain Cotton Growers, Inc., uh, Steve is a, of course, lifelong farmer and advocate uh, for our industry, and uh, he's a past previous winner of the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. And um, anyhow, been a longtime uh, friend of our magazine, longtime friend of cotton farmers across the country. And uh, from his position at PCG, he has really been on top of the developing government response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, and so I believe that was the impetus for Jim ringing him up uh, this past week and kind of picking his brain uh, in this podcast interview. Is that correct, Jim? Was that where y'all's focus was? That is, that's one of the things, primary things we focused on, but I think the other, the other factor in all this too is, you know, we did, I did this interview last Friday. So it'd been April 3rd, uh, which was the day that, that Plains Cotton Grower was scheduled to have their annual meeting. So as, uh, as Steve and I were discussing, we were going to do this interview anyway, but we're just, we were planning to do it face to face. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he had, he had time on his hands Friday uh, from not having the meeting, but yeah, we talked about, uh, about the, you know, what, what growers need to do and kind of the impact that they're starting to see at the ground level uh, in rural areas from, uh, from the, the COVID-19. But we also talked about a couple of other things, including uh, Steve's thoughts on the CARES Act and what uh, were, were the advantages, real advantages are for growers and then kind of got his thoughts a little bit on the uh, on the prospective planting report as well. So uh, it was a good uh, it was a good visit with Steve. Every visit with Steve's good. Uh, I think I think every the listeners will really enjoy to see uh, to hear what he has to say. Okay, good deal, good deal, Jim. So uh, without further ado, then we bring you Steve Verrett of Plains Cotton Growers Inc. Welcome to this episode's market segment. A few weeks ago, terms like social distancing and shelter in place and, and distance learning just weren't part of our normal conversations. But today, a lot of state and local edicts are in place to protect us all and try to lessen the impact of the coronavirus. 
But in spite of that, farming goes on. And today we're going to discuss some of the impact of COVID-19 with Steve Verrett, who's Chief Executive Officer of Plains Cotton Growers based in Lubbock. Steve, thanks for joining us again today. Absolutely. Well, you know, as as we're recording this, you know, if, as you recall, we're supposed to be face to face today at the uh, at the Plains Cotton Growers Annual Meeting, uh, which became an early cancellation due to uh, to the COVID nineteen. How are your growers and and you too as a grower? How are you managing and preparing for another crop season in the midst of of all of this craziness? Yeah, we had uh, we'd done. A, I made a few phone calls earlier this week trying to get a feel for what was going on in the supply chain and down at the retail level, and that's that's pretty much what I was hearing. You know, from seed companies basically saying we're shipping seed, and uh, you know, and growers are still able to get it. There haven't been too many hang-ups and things, and uh, you know, we'll just kind of see with with the new rules and regulations in place as you move farther into the season, and and other products and, and other commodities are needed on the farm. Exactly how everything's going to work out. Yeah, and that's right. It, and you know, I say what I say because at least in most of the rural areas, even here in and around Lubbock, you know, we've had like well, I think nearly a hundred in Lubbock County and a few of the surrounding counties right around Lubbock have had a few cases. But for the most part, when you move out one or two counties from Lubbock, there are no confirmed cases. Now, that doesn't mean there's not people in those areas that might uh, be carrying the virus, uh, but certainly it hasn't been confirmed at this point. But, you know, it can continue to be business as usual as long as we recognize that we have to, we have to be, we have to abide by the rules, and we 
Sure. Uh, now, I think last Friday, March 27th, uh, the president signed the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or, or what's known now as the CARES Act. Uh, and there was sort of a long list of economic relief and other options for individuals, businesses, and industries in that. Part of that, USDA, as I understand, received like $49 billion in that package. What can growers expect from this act, and how can they take advantage of some of these programs? I was going to ask you about that. I'm, I'm glad you jumped into that. Producers, you know, 
have that you could look at uh, and uh, to see about the eligibility. One thing I would add that, you know, once you calculate that and you get that loan, there is an option for loan forgiveness for that amount of money. Uh, but in order to, to forgive, be forgiven of that loan, within eight weeks after the initiation of the loan, you have to show that you paid that money out, uh-huh. that amount of that loan, for payroll, rent, utilities, and mortgage interest. And only, 75, uh, only 25% can be non-payroll. Uh, but as long as you pay that money out within eight weeks of the loan, and either 75% of it has to go to payroll, of course 100% could, but at least 75%, then that loan will be forgiven uh, by by SBA or through your bank and be forgiven but guaranteed by SBA. That's great, and I hope a lot of producers uh, take advantage of that as they, as they move into this this season because I know we were starting to get some comments from you know, from some of our readers that were asking, are we eligible for this or not? And we were able to, same thing, find out uh, that, yes, they were, and try to get that word out. So I appreciate all your comments on that as well. Finally, I just want to talk to you briefly. USDA released its prospective plannings report on March 31st, uh, showing a projection of 13.7 million cotton acres in the U.S. this season, including a little bit of acreage increase for Texas over last year. Any thoughts or reactions you may have heard uh, about that report? Well, I think the report pretty much took everybody by surprise. I, I don't think anybody was expecting acreage to go up that much. I mean, for most of the projections, you know, I think the Cotton Council projection or their survey was 13.2 million acres. And I just think since that time, uh, prices have declined significantly. And so I, I just think there was a lot of uh, a bit of a surprise. I would say here on the high plains of Texas, you know, we planted like 4.3 million acres in 2019. You know, I've been telling everybody that it will be will be less than that, and I'll, I'll be surprised if we get to 4 million acres. You know, one of the things we always talk about here is that, you know, if anybody's going to stick with cotton, it's usually folks in this area, and that's because it's the highest and best use for a lot of our our, our farms, especially in our non-irrigated areas, the right. dryland areas. Mm-hmm. But what, one of the things that uh, I think could drive this even more for maybe less acres, uh, in addition to the price, is uh, a lot of wheat uh, was planted behind cotton after, after the crop was harvested last year. Okay. Because of the moisture that we've had, we've had pretty significant moisture over the winter. The, the wheat right now looks as good as I've ever seen it. And I hear a lot of people talking about the possibility of just carrying that to harvest, especially if wheat prices have been up mm-hmm. over the last month or so, carrying that to harvest. And if they do that, that's going to take land out of, more than likely out of cotton, because you're not going to harvest that wheat until probably the earliest would be mid-June. And by the time, some even into July, that's getting too late to plant cotton uh, behind the wheat. They might look at planting the sorghum, possibly, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, the prices have increased some on as well. And quite honestly, it's just, you know, 
sure. And, and and as always, we'll we'll have that that final picture at the end of June when the uh, the acres planted report comes out. Yeah. Exactly. It and it. I got to tell somebody it, it's going to be what it's going to be. You know. But exactly right. Anyway. I think so too. Uh, and, and like I talk about on this wheat stuff, you know, a lot can happen with that wheat crop from now to the end. If it doesn't, you know, if it turns off hot and dry, which we've had some real warm weather this week until today, there is a chance of rain this weekend. Uh, so that's why it's just a real fluid thing right now. But uh, uh, given what prices are, especially on cotton and not much on the horizon, I just think the acres could be. Sure. We'd hope for. Okay, great, Steve. I'm gonna we're gonna wrap up at this point. And again, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, your perspective in these interesting times is always valuable to us. Well, appreciate you, Jim. And I'm sorry, uh, you know, we're missing that annual meeting today. Usually, by this time of day on Friday of our annual meeting, I'm I'm getting more relaxed because the meeting's over. <laughs> and Great, sounds good. Now, back to the rest of this Cotton Companion. So, okay, Jim, a big thanks to you and a big thanks to Steve Verrett and Plains Cotton Growers. Um, they are always doing their part to support our industry, not only out there on the Plains, but, you know, this uh, him doing agreeing to do this interview with us, sharing that knowledge for the benefit of farmers across the country. He is a great friend of Cotton, and we appreciate him and uh, Plains Cotton Growers, Inc. So we're going to hear a brief message from our sponsor, Enlist. Then I'm going to be back to get you all out of here. As cotton is emerging and growing, cotton farmers are preparing for their annual battle against weeds. And the weeds keep getting tougher. Phytogen cottonseed with the Enlist trait is helping control those tough weeds. Farmers who've planted Phytogen W3FE varieties are making Enlist herbicides the cornerstone of their weed control program. After making pre-emergence treatments featuring residual herbicides, they're taking advantage of the convenience and flexibility of Enlist herbicides post-emergence. These herbicides offer a wider application window with no cutoff dates, days after planting restrictions, or time of day spray restrictions for application on Enlist crops. Learn more about the Enlist system by joining one of our webinars led by an Enlist field specialist to find out how you can maximize success with this Enlist technology. Visit Enlist.com for registration information. So okay, that will just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion podcast. We want to thank Enlist and Cotton Incorporated for sponsoring us this year. Of course, Cotton Incorporated with the Cotton U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol Program. And we want to thank you, dear listeners, sincerely for joining us. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, by all means, tell your buddies about us, and they can get to our podcast in three very easy ways. The first is going to cottongrower.com forward slash companion. The second is to subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever it may be that people are finding your podcast these days. And the third way, the best way, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. That's the Cotton Grower e-news. You can do that by going to www.cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. 
So also, please make sure you're following us on social media. Uh, we are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find us by simply searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. We hope that you are enjoying our latest issue, which I believe at this point is still the March issue, although that April issue should be hitting your mailboxes any day now. This podcast is produced by Mr. Tyler Hatch. He works at the Mothership Meister Media Worldwide in beautiful Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes, and I'll be back with you in two weeks for the next episode of The Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own cotton companion, Mr. Jim Stebman, we wish you and your farm all the best. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cotton Companion. Visit Enlist.com to learn more about the Enlist weed control system and to hear from farmers experiencing the technology.